Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon, with big ups to my pal Riza, presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and producer of our dope theme music. Even as the war in Ukraine continued last week to crank out massive headlines, an emergency NATO meeting in Brussels, Russians on state TV talking about nuking Warsaw if the NATO powers decided to send peacekeepers into Ukraine, Joe Biden showing up in Warsaw himself and calling Vladimir Putin a butcher and declaring that, quote, this man cannot remain in power. All those headlines, in other words, heightening the feeling that what we're witnessing in Europe is a hinge of history moment for the first time in a month since the start of the war was a story in these here United States that felt equally historic. The story, of course, was the Senate confirmation hearings for Ketanji Brown-Jackson, the first African-American woman ever put forward for the United States Supreme Court. The hearings brought some moments that were suitably serious, sometimes joyful, and even, on occasion, sublime. But they also brought way more moments that were embarrassing, farcical, filled with screaming and flaming Jass Ackery, especially on the part of Republican senators who, rather than doing their jobs as if they were there to perform a profound act of constitutional, political, and governmental service and responsibility, instead seemed to think that their job was to perform for their conservative base, to drive engagement on conservative Twitter, to earn applause from the QAnon crowd, and turn themselves into plausible or at least semi-plausible Republican candidates for president in 2024. And maybe, just maybe, if they're really lucky and really made complete douchebags out of themselves, get themselves booked on Jesse Waters' primetime. To talk through the highs and lows of the KBJ hearings, what we learned from them about her and about those sitting in judgment of her, and what it all portends for the future of the Supreme Court, we have with us today two legal luminaries of the highest order. The first is my friend Neil Katyal, the Paul and Patricia Saunders Professor of National Security Law at Georgetown University Law Center, partner at Hogan Lovells, the former acting Solicitor General of the United States, and the author of the fantastic book, Impeach, the case against Donald Trump. The Democrats also miss a really important opportunity. I mean, as I said, this is the most conservative Supreme Court by far in our lifetimes. I think Americans need to know that this is the court that struck down the Voting Rights Act of 1965, about to overturn Roe versus Wade, is about to ban affirmative action. But we didn't hear about that. Instead, we just left it for Republicans to hear about whether babies are racist and nonsense like that. The second is Robin Lenhart, also a professor at Georgetown University Law Center and the co-founder and co-director of the Georgetown Racial Justice Institute. She has previously held faculty positions at Fordham Law School, Columbia Law School, and the University of Chicago Law School, all really good schools. She's worked at the U.S. Department of Justice, worked for the National Lawyers Committee on Civil Rights, and is the co-editor of Critical Race Judgments, U.S. Opinions on Race and Law. I think what you see in justices today being willing to reconsider precedents that were only in the last 10, 15 years, 20 years decided, and that they consider completely changing that. I think that there's a sort of politicization of the court that I don't know that we can survive. Neil Kachel and Robin Lenhart are both brilliant legal minds among the best of their generation, but they are also in a way, uniquely qualified to offer insight into KBJ as a person. Both have known her long and well, and more important, both served in the same seminal legal apprenticeship that shaped Judge Jackson so profoundly, that is, working as a clerk to Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer, a man that all three revere and whose seat on the court KBJ is all but certain to fill. I talked with Katyal and Lenhart about their membership in the Breyer Clerks Club, 
and what that experience has meant to them in their careers and their way of thinking about the law. We also talked about Jackson's qualities as a lawyer, a judge, a human being, from her intellect to her empathy to her temperament, and in particular, her ability to forge principled compromises with those whose jurisprudential views depart significantly from hers. And of course, regrettably, if unavoidably, we talked about the utter clown show put on by the likes of Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham, Marsha Blackburn, Josh Hawley, and the rest of those Republican senators on the committee, how their performances belittled and disgraced them without so much as leaving a scratch on the nominee, and whether Robin and Neil, having lived through the desultory and dismal and soul-destroying experience that watching these hearings play out last week was, have any hope that this Supreme Court nomination process can ever return to being an edifying, instructive, consciousness-raising exercise in civic legal education, or on the other hand, whether the spectacle that SCOTUS confirmation hearings have come to be in these past few decades, especially at a time when the issues facing the U.S. Supreme Court are as grave and consequential to millions of Americans as they have ever been, is sadly just another feature of a world where even our most sacred and essential institutions are engulfed in hell and high water. Oh, oh, and by the way, um, another thing engulfed in hell and high water this week, unfortunately, is the sound quality in this episode, which is not quite up to our usual high standards. Unfortunately, we had some software issues and some remote recording issues, and things are not quite as clean as we'd like them to be around here. So please bear with us this week and uh, just stick with the content. Let's just fo- don't focus on the sound quality. Just listen to what these two brilliant people have to say. Thanks a lot. When I was born here in Washington, my parents were public school teachers, and to express both pride in their heritage and hope for the future, they gave me an African name, Ketanji Onyika, which they were told means lovely one. My parents taught me that unlike the many barriers that they had had to face growing up, my path was clearer so that if I worked hard and I believed in myself in America, I could do anything or be anything I wanted to be. My parents have been married for almost 54 years and they're here with me today. I cannot possibly thank them enough for everything they've done for me. I love you, mom and dad. That's nice to express love for your parents, right? Right there on national television. That was a good moment, right? Neil Robin, good to see you guys. And thank you for doing the podcast. I guess I, I start because you both know her. KBJ, know her, and you're all part of a very select, very elite club. The Supreme Court clerk club is pretty elite, but then the, the Justice Breyer is even more elite in some ways. And I know you guys are all members of that same club. So I'm curious, just from that standpoint, given your personal connections to her, as you watch these hearings start, we'll talk about what happened as they unfolded. But was just sitting here watching her at the end of that first day after all the opening statements by Democrats and Republicans on the committee and seeing her give a brief concise, but I think quite effective opening statement. What are your kind of personal reflections on on seeing your colleague and friend within this historic position? Rob, you can start. It was a mixture of joy to see somebody I've known for for years now take that seat and to have the sort of presence of mind as she looks around and readies herself to talk with the senators to remember her parents. And to make clear, as is true, I think for so many people of our generation, I'm I'm talking about African-American people of that generation, that we have such a, a debt to our parents who sort of 
looked out and imagined a world with justice, with integrity that they wanted to bring their children into. And they worked, you know, I, I was a terrible piano player, but so many of you, if you sort of polled African-American women and men of our age, yes, I had to do piano. Yes, you know, I did speech. I did all these things because our parents tried to sort of will us into a new space with new opportunities. And, and for her to take time, not only to think about what she was about to do, but what her parents did, I, you know, it, it brought tears to my eyes. And for me, that was just the, the right way for her to start because she is such a humble person, even though she's brilliant and has done so much, has achieved so much. But just that moment of thanks, I think, was really special and gives you a good window into our generation and what, we, yeah. what we're thinking about. One of the things that's like easy to do here is like we always now in the modern era of these hearings, we lapse into theater criticism because that's sort of what they become entirely in the post-Bork era, which we'll talk a little more about later. But because it's easy to lapse into it, because this is a familiar ritual, it's easy to be like, yeah, she was composed and that was great that she invoked her parents and it was a nice emotional moment, et cetera, et cetera. And then you stop and go, well, we're watching something we've never seen before. These are familiar tropes that she executed flawlessly, I would say, in her opening statement. But again, it's the first time we've ever seen a black woman do that. And it's it's worth pausing on that for a moment and go in the way that we did a lot of times for the Obamas, where you're like, oh, we've seen all these rituals before, but it's the first time we've ever seen these rituals enacted by this person and this type of person. A hundred percent, John. You know, we've seen confirmation hearings before. And yes, you look at her resume, double Harvard law degrees, former law clerk to Justice Breyer. We've seen those shows before, but we haven't seen this. And I've known Judge Jackson for, for over 20 years as a beloved member of the Breyer Clerk family. But to have this family, this particular family up there and this nominee, I mean, this is history being made. And you think about all the things that she had to overcome, that her parents had to overcome to get her to that place. I mean, it's the opposite of like, for example, the second Justice Harlan, who was the grandson of the first. You know, this is the literal polar opposite of it. It's America at its best. And in a cynical age in which everyone's skeptical of what they're seeing on TV or the cameras or something, the authenticity of her came through. You couldn't go off and, you know, I disagree with Senator Sass on so much, but at least he had to acknowledge that, she was an extraordinary person and jurist, and she just brought integrity and gravitas to the whole thing. You know, I've heard Neil talk on television because Neil, like is the case for me, um, <laughs> tends to be on television a lot. One of the things that he's been asked about a lot is knowing ABJ, as we will call her here for short, because I think it's the ultimate moniker of respect when you get your name broken down. The best is to be Madonna, where it's just a word. Like it'd be like <laughs> Neil someday, just everyone will know. Oh, if you say Neil, Neil Katyal. But KBJ, if you get down to the initials, that's the second highest level of respect in the world where you're really iconic. He's talked a lot about the qualities of her character that he knows about and what he thinks they will bring to the court. And before I turn to the way that Republicans, which is really the whole story of last week, is the way Republicans manage or mismanage the hearings, I just want you to talk about it, Rama, from your point of view, knowing her the way you do, what are the things that you would say about who she is, her character, her biography, the qualities of her person that will be important to the kind of contribution she makes characterologically 
to the court as she serves what is now, you know, virtually, you know, guaranteed she's going to get confirmed and she's going to be on the court for a long time. Yes, she is. We can only be so lucky to have her in that role. The thing that stood out for me watching these hearings is that she really is her own person, that over these years in the different roles that she's taken up, especially her roles on the on the bench, she has really crafted a way of thinking about the law, adjudicating cases in ways that really speak to her. <laughs> I said to to a friend of mine after watching one of the, the hearings, you know, I, I don't want to meet this woman on a, on a dark street because she's unflappable, powerful, and clear about what she needs to do to do justice as she understands it. And I think for the court, what we will find is, Neil will appreciate this, we used to make jokes about Justice Breyer We'd say justice. We open the door and the rug between the chambers in our area is completely frayed because you keep walking down the halls to talk with your colleagues to understand where they're coming from and to try to articulate from your own words what they might think about differently, that they might come out of a different way if you understood X, Y, and Z. And he never gave up on that endeavor. I mean, there were times where I think he was feeling so close to to getting the outcome that he wanted and did not get it in the end, but he never gave up on the, the work of communicating with his colleagues in trying to find consensus. And I think that that ability to bring people together and to have conversations where you might not end up in the same place, but you think the effort of trying to communicate is valuable. That's what I think we'll see from this nominee, that somebody who understands she comes from a different place than many people, but tries to find a place where they can work together. And I think you heard that in what she discussed during the hearings, and I think we'll see that again. So Neil, that's consistent with what I've heard you say over the past week since her nomination, that she could be a consensus builder or a bridge builder, one of those justices who plays that kind of role. Breyer's one of them. There are others in history who've had that place on the court. I think for a lot of people who are not students of the court, but people who just are watching the rich pageant of American life unfold and watching this stuff play out, they listen to you say stuff like that and go, man, that seems really like out of step with what we perceive to be the moment we're in, in terms of the fierce partisanship and polarization that we see. And that people assume, even if the court is less partisan and less polarized internally than Congress is, or than our presidential campaigns are, or than our school board meetings are now, that it's still become more partisan and more polarized, and that the environment there must have shifted and changed. If you start maybe with Bush v. Gore and move forward, that it can't just be this kind of collegial, totally insulated environment that sometimes it sounds like people like you were saying it is like the courts are different. You know, they may have different ideologies, but they all work together. They all love each other, et cetera, et cetera. What do you say to people like that? And I'm, the reason I'm asking is because if you watch this confirmation hearing unfold, I think it reinforces people's skepticism that the yeah. court is different in some way. So just talk about that a little bit. And I think it does vary again on her because of the qualities that Robin just talked about and you've talked about in the past. I mean, first of all, I do think that this Supreme Court with these jurists on it 
is the most conservative Supreme Court in our lifetime by far, one of the most conservative Supreme Courts in the history of the United States. You know, there have been three recent changes in the court, now soon to be four, but Justice Gorsuch replaced Justice Scalia. I don't think that changed the court if much, if any. But then Justice Kavanaugh replacing Justice Kennedy, who was a swing vote, and replaced by someone who is a much more conservative jurist. And then the real game changer, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg being replaced by Justice Amy Coney Barrett. So I think we have a, a very, very conservative court. Having said that, I think the so-called hard left gets this absolutely wrong when they want to have a bomb thrower appointed to the court, you know, someone who's going to be a supposedly strident voice for this or that or so on, because that isn't the way the court works. The court works by trying, as Robin was saying more eloquently than I could a moment ago, by listening to one another. And to be sure, you're starting with a really conservative court and Judge Jackson replacing Justice Breyer doesn't change it very much in that sense. But to have someone who's continuing his legacy and may even carry it forward of listening, I think is gonna have important consequences in two areas. Number one, you know, it's not the case even with this very, very radically conservative court that you don't get good results out of it. Now they're rare, but you know, just take the last couple of months in which eight to one, this court rejected President Trump's claims of executive privilege about January 6th. This court also in the North Carolina redistricting case, which you know, both of these are cases I'm involved with, just to disclose it, but rejected the Republican attempts to try and throw out the North Carolina redistricting done by the North Carolina Supreme Court. So that's just in the last few weeks. Those opportunities, you can't just blow them off and anger all your colleagues. I mean, Justice Scalia, brilliant justice, but wasn't able to bring his colleagues along because he was a bomb thrower. So that's one thing. The other way in which this really matters is, yes, I suspect the liberals will lose a lot at the court with this composition of the court, but how you lose is really important. And someone like Judge Jackson understands how to craft a narrow decision and have a narrow loss. Even in the big hot button cases, if there's a way to lose and engineer a soft landing, someone like Judge Jackson with her savvy and with her relationships, which I suspect she'll forge with the other eight justices, will be far more able to do that than some of the people that are you know, talked about for the Supreme Court. I absolutely agree with that. I think that she has a real opportunity to make this court better, right? Stronger, more thoughtful as we move forward. I would sort of push back on my friend Neil just a little bit, which is to say that I take your bomb throwing concern, but I do think that there's got to be a voice on the court, whether it's from the left or on the right side, you'll see it too, that can speak directly to concerns that might not come out in an opinion that where some measure of consensus is reflected. And I, I wouldn't call it bomb throwing. I think I would say that there has to be, even when, when the core of the court comes together, someone who speaks to the issues that have not been fully articulated by those in consensus. And I don't think that risks the court's ability to do what it must do in this context. I think not talking about those issues can bring its own difficulties down on the court. 
Yeah, I don't think we're disagreeing, Robin. I mean, there's a difference in my mind between consensus building, which is good and important, but, you know, I think also has to be subordinate to truth seeking. And, you know, you definitely want justices who seek the truth. My only point is there's a kind of desire among many to try and have almost the kind of character assassination justice who's going to not just speak truth to power with logic, but with rhetoric and antagonizing her colleagues. This is the kind of high-minded conversation that I expected to get from you two brilliant and civilized people, and not anything like what we heard actually in the confirmation hearings. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to play one piece of sound. Marsha Blackburn and Judge Jackson here. Let's play that, and we can talk about a bunch of these and wrap them all up in a big ball. Can you provide a definition for the word woman? Can I provide a definition? Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. I can't. You can't? not in okay. this context. So I'm not a biologist. The meaning of the word woman is so unclear and controversial that you can't give me a definition? Senator, in my work as a judge, what I do is I address disputes. If there's a dispute about a definition, people make arguments, and I look at the right. law, and I decide. Well, so I'm not... The fact that you can't give me a straight answer about something as fundamental as what a woman is underscores the dangers of the kind of progressive education that we are hearing about. I play that one, I guess, because it's illustrative of a bunch of things. But I will say, you know, Ted Cruz, who I believe holds degrees from Princeton and Harvard, who had questions that included asking KBJ, I'm a Hispanic man, but could I just decide that I'm an Asian man? on my own? And would that then change my status under law or under policy as to whether she thought that babies were racist? Do do you agree with this book that is being taught with kids that that babies are racist? Senator, I do not believe that any child should be made to feel as though they are racist or though they are not valued or though they are less than, that they are victims, that they are oppressors. I don't believe in any of that. You know, Lindsey Graham asked her to rank her degree of religiosity on a scale of one to 10. On a scale of one to 10, how faithful would you say you are in terms of religion? You know, I go to church probably three times a year, so that speaks poorly of me. (laughs) Or do do you attend church regularly? Well, Senator, I am reluctant to talk about my faith in this way just because I want to be um, mindful of the need for the public to uh, have confidence in my ability to separate out my personal views. There were discussions about child pornography. There were discussions about all kinds of things that all were you know, kind of transparently nakedly political. As you watched all of that unfold, Again, the kabuki element of this, which is, again, kind of a constant feature of Supreme Court confirmation hearings and processes, were more, in some ways, more vivid and more, I would say, ridiculous in this case than I've seen in many cases. All the attacks are of a piece, right? And the Blackburn one kind of illustrates, I think, all of it in a certain way. Talk about what you saw in terms of how Republicans who don't have the votes, who know she's going to get out of the court, how they decided to approach these hearings and what they were trying to do with the time they had on national television. Neil, go ahead. You can start. 
So perhaps most Americans, John, learn about the court and its justices through these Supreme Court confirmation hearings, because the Supreme Court has, much to my dismay, blocked cameras from the courtroom. So that's what they see. And if Americans see this kind of surreal display of focusing on obscure culture war obsessions, it's not particularly inspiring in terms of the court's role in our democracy and the court and all Americans are the losers. So to me, the Supreme Court confirmation hearings this week were much more about the Senate and their absurdity than they were about the nominee. And that is just so, so tragic. That's basically my feeling as I come off from this. She's going to get confirmed, but what is the American public got to think about the court when what they see is this? I mean, Judge Jackson is some sort of person who believes that babies are racist. I mean, it can't get worse than that. I mean, it's just ridiculous. I think the other thing I'd say is just the split screen contrast between the absurd behavior of the Republicans in the Senate on one side, the intemperate attacking folks there and the poise and decency and character of Judge Jackson. I mean, that's what I come away thinking about. As restrained a person as I am, I couldn't have had her poise. I was just so, so taken with it. And even having known her for a long time, but to see that performance, that display of brilliance, that display of calmness in the face of this, so impressive. She's very good at having the what the fuck, you asshole, without her face, without actually saying what I would say, which is what the fuck, you asshole, in that hearing. Like, I'm like, wow, man, the level of restraint on that woman. But she conveys it, though. You know that's what she's thinking. She's got a good face. You can hear the thought. You see the thought bubble, but it doesn't come out of her mouth. Very impressive. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I want to echo what Neil said in that I thought she was supreme in responding to the inane questions and comments that the conservative members of the Senate engaged in. I also thought to build on what Neil said, I thought absolutely they were way out of bounds, but I also felt like they were sort of taking part in a process that had nothing to do with what was happening in the Senate at that moment. They were speaking to people in Iowa, our former president, that was a show for those folks. And I thought that was a great loss for them not to have really engaged in a serious way, which should have been happening at the Senate, was for many of the senators, but not, not for enough. The other thing I would say is that I told my students, uh, I'm teaching con law too, that I would let them watch the hearings for a little while, you know, 10 minutes or something like that. And all these young, bright law students, when 10 minutes came up, they said, we're going to do this for the next two hours, professor, because this is where we need to be. This is what we can learn from. And I think that that's something else that came out of this process is just to have Judge Jackson lay out for all the people in the country to see the relationship between Congress and the executive branch. And she really sort of gave a, a good account of what we should be doing in the various branches of the court. And I, I thought for my students, they love that and really appreciated that she took that work so seriously. 
I want to build on something Robin said, John, just for a moment, yeah. um, which yeah, is we have both been kind of singling out the Republicans in the Senate for their behavior, which was absurd and awful. But the Democrats also missed, I think, a really important opportunity. I mean, as I said, this is the most conservative Supreme Court by far in our lifetimes. And, you know, Judge Jackson didn't need any defense. But boy, I think Americans need to know that this is the court that struck down the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that has been striking down, you know, all sorts of stuff about to overturn Roe versus Wade is about to get rid of a ban affirmative action is about to say that people can carry concealed weapons without much government regulation and strike down any contrary rules. The court that had Citizens United that said corporations are entitled to First Amendment free speech rights. And, you know, I could go on and on, but we didn't hear about that. Instead, we just left it for Republicans to hear about, you know, whether babies are racist and nonsense like that. Well, that kind of takes us into the territory that I'd like to explore. But first, uh, we have to take a quick break. So we'll be right back with more Neil Katyal and Robin Lenhart here on Hell and High Water. So you think of yourself as a recount super fan. You're a big news buff. You wake up every day with our daily newsletter or you gorge on our Twitter feed. Either way, we've got a new show just for you. Premiering Wednesday, March 30th at 4 p.m. on Twitch, recount.co slash Twitch. The show is called Chatterbrain, the news game show. It's a show that will test three contestants on their knowledge of current events and other trivia. One winning contestant will take on the wisdom of crowds, the Twitch chat room in the final round. Host Slade Sommer, the Recounts Editor-in-Chief, picks the topics from the Recounts treasure trove of stories and insights to create this first-of-its-kind news game show. So get reading. Everyone can play along in the Twitch chat for fun, but come round three of the game, you chat goers will go head-to-head to beat the last standing contestant. You'll laugh, you'll cheer, you'll catch up on the news. Doesn't matter if you get a question wrong, you will definitely learn something, and that's what it's all about. Tune into Chatterbrain on Wednesday, March 30th at 4 p.m. ET. To flaunt your news knowledge, find us on Twitch at recount.co backslash Twitch. And welcome back to Hell and High Water. Before the break, uh, we were discussing the ridiculous behavior of Republicans during the KBJ hearings. To a large degree, the worst miscreants in this area are Republicans with national ambitions who want to run for president in 2024. They use this hearing as a way to broadcast their views to the Republican base and chuck red meat into that quadrant and, you know, in hopes that they would be uh, more viable in a Republican nomination fight. If that is, Donald Trump decides not to enter it, a very big if. You know, I have to say, you know, as much as all of that was totally predictable, it is still shocking to me that they focused to the degree uh, that they did on this issue of child pornography, which is basically just like a big chunk of like really big juicy steak thrown right into the den where QAnon lives. And I want to stop and take a moment to play uh, an exchange that speaks to this really directly. It's exchange from the hearing when Lindsey Graham pressed KBJ about her sentencing in child pornography cases, which illustrates so much above this point that I'm, I'm talking about right now, what we've been talking about here. Senator, every person in all of these uh, charts and documents I sent to jail because I know how serious this crime is. You always were under the recommendation of the prosecutor, many times the parole people. And all I can say is that your view of how to deter child pornography is not my view. 
I think you're doing it wrong, and every judge who does what you're doing is making it easier for the children to be exploited. If you're on a computer right now looking at a kid in a sexually compromising situation and you get caught, I hope nobody gives you a break because you use the computer. It's a very good window into just how far to the right, if you're aspiring to be president of the United States and get the Republican nomination, or, you know, if you just want to hold on to your seat in the Senate and you want to make sure that you're not vulnerable to getting primaried from someone even further to the right than you are, you have to behave like a total douchebag on television and appeal to the furthest, furthest right quadrant. And that far right quadrant is now in total cuckoo land. Right. So that's all true. But here's the thing, Neil, your point is a different kind of point that people talk about Bork as having been this moment where. We used to have kind of not partisan confirmation hearings, and then Democrats injected partisanship in the Bork hearings. And then ever since then, they've just been partisan shit shows, right? That's kind of a conventional wisdom that people have, right? And certainly, Republicans often invoke that as a critique of what Democrats did by ruining the process. I was talking to a tribe yesterday, and we both were saying, you know, if you actually watched the Bork hearings, which I moved to Washington in 1987, and I, I watched it like so I was there in the middle of it and not part of it, but very much focused on it because it was like the first big controversy in my Washington career. You saw it then, and you go back now. There was a hard ideological edge to those hearings, but there was also an incredible amount of substance. It was a substantially engaging with a nominee who was willing to talk about controversial views that he had, but that he was a brilliant man. And they were jousting on a very high plane of intellectual engagement. And the actual legacy of that is that we don't have that anymore. You now have everybody afraid to engage in genuine discussion of issues and the, the intersection of ideology and issues and philosophy and issues, because everyone's afraid that if they talk about anything that will get them in trouble, they'll lose. And so both sides have taken the view, which is like, we have to make this theater because it'll be too risky for our nominee to actually say what they believe. And that's just taken us into a place where it's really empty. It's not that it's too angry. It's that it's just too empty now. A hundred percent. So Robert Bork was opposed not because, you know, he thought babies were racist or any sort of nonsense, but substantively because he thought there was no right to privacy in the Constitution, that states could, for example, ban people from getting contraception and put them in jail for getting the birth control pill, and because he couldn't say Brown versus Board of Education was rightly decided. Now, I'm sorry, if that's your view, you know, yeah, I don't think you deserve to be on the Supreme Court. That shouldn't be all that controversial. The Republicans keep invoking a Bork example, and you started all this and so on. But there's a real difference between the way the Bork hearings happened and what happened with Judge Jackson, which was just a whole bunch of you know nonsense. Do you think there's any way to get that back? I mean, because your point a second ago, this is the one thing I wanted to stick with with you for a second, then Rob, I'll turn to you. But like, your point was Democrats dropped the ball in that they could have used these hearings to make some powerful points about the nature of the court now and what rights are in jeopardy and all that. And I think you're right about that, but it also would have kind of put on the table a bunch of issues that they actually don't want their nominee to answer on. They don't want to get into that fight either. What they would rather have is also cheap theatrics. They want to sing praises to her biography. Republicans want to attack her on irrelevant grounds. Everyone's kind of happy to live in that place because there's no risk involved in that. Well, yeah, I just fundamentally disagree with the Democrats on this. So I think that you can chew gum and walk at the same time. So you can educate the American public through senatorial statements about what's happening at the court. At the same time, the nominee can't answer a lot of these things because those are matters that are going to come before the court. 
there's a big difference between that and asking, as the Democrats did in the Senate with Judge Bork, about his past writings, because Bork had said, basically, there was no right to privacy in his past writings and so on. All that's fair game. So I think the Democrats have made a miscalculation. They're running an old playbook, but you can't run that old playbook when you have this kind of Supreme Court that's been seated. Let me ask you this other question, Robin, that plays into this, which is the other thing Republicans say, and they said it all this week, it was a constant running theme, which is the Bork hearings are one of the bogeymen, and the new bogeyman is the Kavanaugh hearings, right? Which is, if you stand up and say something that I believe I said on real time, where I said, yeah, you know, the Republicans just behave worse in these hearings than Democrats do. Go back and look at the way Democrats treated Judge Gorsuch or past Republican nominees. Yeah, they're hard-edged and they're partisan, but they don't behave the way that these Republicans did. And of course, I have a lot of Republicans in my Twitter timeline now saying, what about Kavanaugh? They were terrible to Kavanaugh. It was just as much of a circus. They were just as bad. What do you say about that? There's no comparison on that. And the reason is that only works if you're willing to ignore the concerns that many people raised about his past behavior and his treatment of women, which I think is fair game. If you want to be a member of the Supreme Court, people get to ask serious questions about choices you've made in the past. That's the difference, that there was a serious, credible concern that had to be addressed. And Ted, Ted Cruz, I went to law school with him. Both of us clerked at the same time with him. He knows the difference, I think, between what we heard and what what happened with Kavanaugh. I assume at this late stage, you've recovered from that experience by now, right? You're like all better from having spent some time in proximity. To you're feeling, you're I, feeling better. I, I still have a hard time seeing him play things out in the way that he does. I don't agree with him, but we've sat in class together. He's a smart guy and he knows what's happening. And uh, so I, I feel disappointment when I see some of the um, behavior you see on TV. You know, this is the other thing that Tribe said to me. He said, I don't know what to do about this, but chiming in on a point you made earlier, in just ever so slightly different context, he was like, nobody watches national television the way they used to, but this is still a huge opportunity to educate the American public about the constitution, about the courts, about the interplay between the three branches of government, all of that stuff. It's potentially, it's the biggest wide open, predictable kind of platform for that that we have. I mean, occasionally you have a moment in American life where you get to do that kind of teachable moment, but you don't know when they're going to come. And yet we've now taken that and collectively, I mean, somehow what we've ended up with, we totally squandered. Not only are these hearings not that, they rot your brain, right? If you watch them, I think if you watch them all day long, you'd like you end up with a, with a migraine watching these things and you're dumber for having watched them rather than smarter. Is there anything practical that you could say, not as a policy recommendation, but what would have to change in terms of the political equities and the, the ways in which all the sides kind of weigh things out? What would have to change to get back to something that would be more productive for the American people on confirmation hearings and making them decent again? Well, John, you know, I'm, I'm such, a, in general, an optimist about human behavior. I know, and that's why, I asked, to, that's why yeah. I asked. I thought if there was but, anyone who could but, find a, a, a pony in that pile of shit, it'd but, be you. <laughs> but on this one, I have to confess, I'm at a loss. I myself tried to do that. When I was Elena Kagan's deputy and she was nominated to the Supreme Court, I watched some Republican senators treat her ridiculously. And it broke my heart because here was one of the most qualified people to have ever been nominated to serve on the Supreme Court. And I was heartened then because one senator 
a Republican senator said, if I were president, I wouldn't put her up. But, you know, my party didn't win. And she was credentialed. And she had a letter of support from a very prominent conservative lawyer, Miguel Estrada. And he said that gave him hope. Well, that senator was Lindsey Graham. And in 2017, when President Trump nominated Neil Gorsuch, I thought about that and thought about basically the same kind of calculus and said, look, I would never put Neil Gorsuch on the court if I were president, but my party didn't win. And so I supported him. And when I testified for him at his confirmation hearings, a senator came up to me afterwards and said, that was such an important act for of bipartisanship for the court and to protect its legitimacy and for the sanctity of these hearings. That man was Senator Lindsey Graham. Now contrast what that behavior was with what he did this week, you know, starting by trying to figure out how often she goes to church and what religion she was, even though the Constitution bars religious tests expressly in it, badgering her about ridiculous nonsense about child pornography and all the other stuff we've talked about. I mean, he was the man holding the line on all this, you know, stuff. And now he is the problem. So that, I think, in a nutshell, demonstrates just how far we've gone. And I don't know what the solution is. I mean, I'm hardened by senators like Amy Klobuchar, who are substantive and who are high-minded. I just don't see any on the other side. Neil, I don't have a religious test in this podcast, but what religion are you anyway? I want to make a larger point. What religion are you, Mr. Katya? It's just unbelievable. It's like an incredible exchange. It got bad. I think it was interesting to listen to. I'm going to play Cory Booker as a, as a final note here because, you know, we're going to have to acknowledge this is all kabuki. And, and now we pretty much know something weird would have to happen for KBJ not to become a member of the court. And Judge Manchin has come out and said they had the votes all along. So it's going to happen. So it was all kabuki, which is a form of theater. And without getting into shallow theater criticism, we did, if you were watching this soul-destroying, brain-eroding spectacle over the course of a couple of days, you got to a point where you knew she was going to get confirmed, but it still started to get you down. The mood in the room was bad. And if you're watching it, you're like, man, this sucks. That is horrible. Everything that was hopeful about this historic moment and this historic woman has suddenly kind of gone away. And I can't remember why I was looking forward to seeing this person go through this process that should be uplifting and inspirational. And Cory Booker could have rode in on his horse and said, hey, hey, guys, listen, I'm going to remind you of why. And let's play that Cory Booker sound so we can hear what he did. And I want to tell you when I look at you, this is why I get emotional. I'm sorry, you're, you're, you're a person that is so much more than your race and gender. You're a Christian, you're a mom, you're, you're, you're an intellect, you love books. But for me, I'm sorry, it's hard for me not to look at you and not see my mom. I see my ancestors and yours. Nobody's going to steal the joy of that woman in the street or the calls that I'm getting or the texts. Nobody's going to steal that joy. You have earned this spot. You are worthy. You are a great American. I got to say, like, you know, Cory Booker, sometimes his degree of optimism and the politics of joy that he practices sometimes strikes me as a little hokey. That was not one of those moments. I found it utterly refreshing. And it was like, oh, my God, thank God somebody brought us back to home base here. And Rob and I ask you, I mean, whether you saw it live or later, I'm sure you saw it in one of those venues, what you thought yes. when you saw Cory Booker step up and say the things that he said, both kind of seizing the moment, but also the actual substance of it. Because I can't help but think as a black woman, there's some part of you that was like, yes, yes, I see that too. And it's my story also. Absolutely. 
Cory Booker is my senator, and I've known him for some time, actually before he really got into politics. And I do think that moment where he really spoke to Judge Jackson and said, you belong here, you are part of the American story in a way that I agree with you, probably only he could have done in that chamber. And, you know, for me, tears, so many tears, mostly tears of joy, but also tears that really go to the the difficulties that African-American women, men still have, still with the lengths that we still have to go to be treated equally. So I, I took the positive, but I also realized that he was speaking about how hard it remains to be, even though you've got, as Judge Jackson has, you know, parents who prepared her, who put everything into their children, just as my parents did. There's still so much more to do. And I, I guess what I thought of as he completed his story is that, you know, she's she's giving us hope, I think, and also the strength to move forward at a time when much has changed, but that at the same time, we have not yet seen enough change. And you didn't ask this question, but I'll I'll put it out there. I thought as many people did when the president said that he would select an African-American woman to be on the court, lots of excitement, happiness to have a president who would realize the import of having an African-American be on the court and what that would say to the rest of the country. So there's that. But what we have not seen and we really can't see from what we saw this week is where we go after that. I want to celebrate. I want to see what Justice Jackson does with her work. But I also want to pick up the part of the conversation around Black women and Black families that sort of got dropped as we all said, you know, look what's about to happen. And that is, that's important, I think, to to really, you know, say it's great to have the justice, but we need lots of other things in our community, too, so that we can continue to enjoy what we were able to get out of the civil rights movement. And so I I celebrate, but I'm also waiting for those in the executive branch, Congress, and even the court in certain ways to move forward. What the president did only sort of gets us part of the way. We've got more to do. So I know I'm not supposed to be a downer, but we need to be real. You you could be, let's, let's be real here. You think about, you know, Thurgood Marshall got on the court a long time ago and there's now been an, an African-American on the court consistently for a pretty long time. This notion of a black seat, so to speak, you know, kind of exists. And we've had, we have a Hispanic woman on the court. First, then we had got women on the court. Then we got a Hispanic woman on the court. It took a long time to get a black woman on the court. That combo, I don't mean to be glib about it, but the combination, even after there was an acceptance that there should be an African-American on the court a long time ago, there was not really an imperative for either party that we must have a black woman on the court until what years ago? It's 2022. You know, it took a long time. That's like 50, 50 years, 40 years since people started. Thinking, oh, yes, we should probably have, you know, an African-American on the court. And, you know, there's still a ground there's left to cover and how, how retrograde the political system is, even in places where there's been a kind of acceptance that there should be 
a court or a, a Congress that looks more like America, they're still like, well, there's certain corners that are harder to lift up than others. And this one turned out to take a very long time. And I think you have to at least be grateful for that, but also at the same time, recognize that there's still a long way to go, as you said. Okay, we're gonna take one more break and we'll be back with more Neil Katyal and Robin Lenhart on Helen High Water. And we're back with Neil Katyal and Robin Leonard on Hell and High Water. The thing we haven't discussed at this point is that the two of you have known each other for a while and you, you met as clerks, I believe. Yeah. You guys yeah. met when you started your, your clerkship with Justice Breyer. And I do want to talk about Justice Breyer because we're losing him. And we should say a little bit about that. I want to play a little bit of Robin talking about her time with Justice Breyer in a C-SPAN series called American the Court. And then we'll talk about your guys' joint membership in that club on the other side. Uh, Justice Breyer hired me to work with him on the First Circuit. And then about two weeks after he hired me, he was nominated to be a justice on the Supreme Court. And so he decided eventually to bring me along with him. He's attentive to the context in which he's picking clerks. He understands that many minorities are not represented in some of the more prestigious institutions that uh, were just not there in the same numbers. And yet it's important, um, I think, to have the input that individuals like me and some of my other colleagues uh, would bring. So, Neil, I, I want to add that's, a, you know, a very much on point with the, the topic we were just talking about. But you guys were there in, in 95, 96, 96, 97, right? 96, 97. So, it seems to me like that doesn't feel like that long ago to me. And yet, you know, I'm curious what it was like for the two of you, neither one of you white, by the way, I'll note, what was the clerking world at Supreme Court like in the mid 1990s? How, how much were you in the minority as minorities, so to speak? And what was it like to kind of connect there? And, and what do you remember from that time on the court? Well, first of all, I'll say, you know, the privilege of clerking with Robin Lenhart is one of the greatest things of my life. I mean, she was an extraordinary clerk and has gone on to do extraordinary things. And I think that was one of Justice Breyer's geniuses because John, clerks at the time didn't look like Robin and I. You know, there are very, very few minority clerks in the entire history of the Supreme Court. They all tended to be white men. And this is where Justice Breyer's legacy is so important. I mean, starting in 1981, when he was on the First Circuit Court of Appeals, he made a decision to hire equal numbers of men and women. And I remember this came up because he has pictures of all of his law clerks on the walls. And I noticed that at one point and I asked him, and he said, yeah, I made that conscious decision then. And it has a profound influence on me in my hiring. I was hired at least 50-50 because my thinking is if Justice Breyer can do it for Supreme Court law clerks, we all can do it. And then that's also true on the racial diversity side. I mean, year after year, Justice Breyer, you know, tends to field the most diverse clerks. That's true even when there are other minorities on the court, but he tends to do it. I have another African-American woman, Jay Sagar, who's working for me now, former Justice Breyer law clerk and the like. It's just extraordinary. So that's one aspect of his legacy. The other aspect is really his consensus building, which is something we talked briefly about in the context of Judge Jackson. But I just want to reiterate it here. And I wrote a piece about it on the day of his announced retirement in the Washington Post, because as law clerks, we'd come in and we'd be so mad, particularly at something Justice Scalia said about him in an opinion, and we'd want him to respond in kind because Justice Scalia could be so mean to him. And he would always said, nope, I'm going to take the high road. He put it aside and he said, tomorrow's another day 
and I'll need to talk to Justice Scalia. And that was, you know, an incredibly important lesson to learn, not that you never hit back, but that you do so only when it's really, really important because this is a long-term set of repeat players. Robin, talk about what it was like. I'm curious to hear what it, you know, your perspective was about injuring. You talked a little bit about how, you know, you were grateful for the way that Justice Breyer was attentive to some of these issues and disparities. But I mean, what was young Neil Katyal like? I have, if I could, if I could do some wait, time wait, travel. That, that's well beyond the scope of this <laughs> interview. Oh, no, <laughs> so this is not a court of law. Uh, a, counselor, your objection is shot down with, with yep. all. Neil's always force. had good, you know, good choices in music. And he, he would play that music at very high volumes late at night. And that was where he did his best work. And I always, I always envied him for being able to, to work in that way. And he Can was- Can you give us an example? What's like a memorable song? A lot of garbage uh, songs. The band, not the... <laughs> no, that's not garbage. <laughs> yeah. um, but also just a, a generosity of spirit. I mean, that yeah. I, I think that particular year, we had a very good set of colleagues and we worked together very, very well. And we were pretty diverse. We really, we got together in a way that I think made the work better overall. The one thing I'll say about the justice is that he, he was just so kind and so thoughtful. There was another African-American woman who was clerking the same year that I was clerking. We're, we were friends before and we continue to be friends now. And the whole year, I don't know if you were really picked up on this, Neil. But oh, yeah, I know. I know. There, <laughs> I know. What I, you're gonna say. <laughs> if I order books from the library, they would never come. They would deliver those books to our friend at the time and not to me. And then when she would order library books, her books would come to me. And for months, we just did not understand what, what was what is going on? Why is this happening? And then we realized they just can't get behind the idea that there's more than one African-American person clerking at the court this year. And there are even skits and things where we tried to make a point by being funny, by how difficult it was for even our colleagues to sort of internalize that there were two African-American women and, you know, for me to have a justice who understood what it would feel like to be basically ignored by someone in the court really meant something to me. I imagine, Neil, to go back to, again, an earlier point that, A, it's kind of incredible to hear stories like this from the mid-1990s. Again, I still feel like the mid-1990s were yesterday, you know, and yet this is not that long ago. But I imagine it was different for you, Right. I mean, even as a non-white lawyer, but as a man, it was different for you in that situation than it was for Robin. Absolutely different. I mean, I think what Robin and our other friend went through was just categorically different. And, you know, it just to circle back to the hearings, I think the way this nominee was treated was different than every other nominee in American That's history. I was talking about the hearings with an 11-year-old recently, and we're talking about our baby's racist book. And this 11-year-old asked me, would that question been asked if she weren't an African-American woman? And I thought that was exactly the right question. I'm ashamed, frankly, at the way she was treated by the Senate of the United States. 
this is a, someone who's lived an extraordinary life full of decency and brilliance and respect for those with whom she disagrees. And she didn't get any of that back. And I'm really disheartened by the fact that the Senate and senators, including senators that aren't uh, the wackadoodle ones like Senator Ben Sass, have announced they're going to vote against her because that is a profound statement about where that party is. It's certainly not a statement about Katanji Brown Jackson. Hey, Neil, let me ask you one last question. I know you got to go, but I want to get one last question about the future into you because you know, one of the things we did learn this week is that she is going to recuse herself from this affirmative action case that the court's taken for next year. And one of the things that ties the two of you together, you and Robin here, is that you both were involved in the Michigan cases in 2003 that are now going to be relitigated by the court in the fall. I'm just curious if you can just talk about that. You've given speeches about this. I know you have strong views about affirmative action. Kind of set the table on that. Judge Jackson is going to recuse herself because of her connections to Harvard it is right now of the only six cases that the court's taken for the 2022-2023 term. It's the one that's, I think, the most obviously potentially historic and high profile. And I just like to get a sense of, of you can lay out from any perspective you want what the stakes are of it, how we should think about it. I don't know if you have any connection to it. So I'm asking this a little bit in the dark, but I'd love to hear your thoughts about it before you have to go. Well, yes, you're right, John. The court has taken six cases, and some people think that's the historic case, but I've got a case about Delaware's treatment law, and I think that's really going to keep everyone uh, yeah, I was interested. Say, man, <laughs> I, 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 I don't think I'm asleep between now and then. I'm so excited to hear about that right. one. Oh, uh, exactly. But I am involved. I'm the lead lawyer for Yale University in all the affirmative action challenges. So just please you know, understand that as I answer this. So the case basically asks whether Harvard's racial preferences are unconstitutional because basically, even though Harvard is a private institution, they receive federal funds. And so they have to follow the same rule book as do state entities. And indeed, this case is paired with another case from the University of North Carolina, which also has its own affirmative action program. And the conservatives on the court have been gunning for affirmative action for years and saying that it violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which is interesting because they're so-called originalists who care about the original meaning of the amendments when it suits them. But of course, the very Congress that enacted the 14th Amendment had all sorts of racial preferences at the same time that they enacted contemporaneously with it. So it's another one of these examples of conservative hypocrisy about methodology. But you know, I'll leave that aside for a moment and just say, Judge Jackson has said that she'll recuse from the Harvard case. She hasn't said she'd recuse from the UNC case. So she may still very well sit on that set of issues. But there are five, perhaps six votes that on the court who've emphasized a lot of hostility to affirmative action in the past. We'll see what happens with this particular case. And there may be distinctions between the two programs and distinctions between the programs at those schools and others. You know, just so you know that uh, to be respectful of your needs to to ski and, and exercise your <laughs> exercise your your rich guy. Like, it's I, my you know. last my kid's last day of spring break. That's yeah, what's going enjoy. on. Right yeah. now. This this is this is this is just like, I I'm an Aspen and I <laughs> gotta go you, skiing. You thank guys you. are losers. Thank you, Neil, for being so willing on Neil, your vacation hey, yeah. to Neil, be on Neil, my podcast. I'm deeply grateful and I love you very much. And I'm regretful in that you're leaving before we have a chance to do a really fine grained reading of whether you improved at all as an actor between your performance in House of Cards and your performance in Billions. I was going to bring in like the New York Times film critic and others. We'll do a separate podcast on that matter um, yeah. at, a, at a later date. Thank you. Seriously, thank you for taking the time. And thank you for bringing Robin on. But Robin, don't go anywhere because now, Neil, you're excused. 
I could hear his kids. I could hear his hitch agitating. I have one more. I just have one question on this matter for you, and then I'll let you go, Robin, too. I, I want to go back to the thing I mentioned a second ago, which is, you know, these cases that you and Neil both were involved in in different ways back in 2003, the Gratz versus Bollinger case and Grutter versus Bollinger, both about the University of Michigan. They were both affirmative action cases. They were, you know, at the time seen as very important. In fact, I think I have some sound of you from 2003 talking about those cases, which were about university. They were separate cases. One was about the University of Michigan's undergraduate admissions, and one was about its law school admissions. The court will return to a question that it first addressed 25 years ago, whether the consideration of race as a factor in uh, admissions for institutions of higher education is constitutional. I want to be very real with you on this. If there is an adverse decision in the Michigan cases, what we will see is the resegregation of institutions of higher education. That's what we're facing here. And while it shouldn't be our only fight as a community, we need to be focused on that because that is a serious loss. You worked on one of the litigation teams when you were at Wilmer Cutler, and Neil worked on it as one of the representatives for a lot of private law school deans. So you guys kind of intersected on that case. And at the time, as I said, back in 2003, you talked about how if there was an adverse ruling, what we will see is the resegregation of institutions of higher education. And as it turned out, you had an adverse ruling in one of those cases on the undergraduate case and, and a non-adverse ruling on the law school case. I'm curious whether you think the stakes are that high for this next set of cases that Neil was just talking about. Is that what's on the line here with this next set of challenges to existing policy and to the precedents in those cases? The very conservative court, as we discussed earlier today, goes all in and rips down affirmative action in those cases. Are we looking at the resegregation of higher education? Is that what's on the line here? I think that there will be a real change if that happens. Now, Universities like Harvard or, or Yale, uh, they may adopt practices that are well within the law that will retain some of the students who we see, you know, applying to schools or who are in currently schools now. But I do think that there will be a change. And, and frankly, the whole purpose, I think, of the litigation that we have seen over and over the years, funded by a particular individual with great wealth who has made his life's purpose to <laughs> return, I think, white students to the place that he believes that they should be. There's no other way to sort of understand it, given his choices and litigation strategies. So I, I think that, you know, it's not going back years and years and years. And yet I think that we will see changes that should raise concerns for any American who thinks that our current contacts with diversity seen in families like the soon to be Justice Jackson should be. I think things are not looking up in this area. In a lot of other areas too. It's like, you know, you, you go back to those famous Ted Kennedy words about what would happen in Judge Bork's America. And, you know, we talked about, you know, the back alley abortions and you couldn't teach evolution in the schools. And there's a whole litany of things there other than there will be segregated lunch counters again. If you go through that litany of Kennedy's, an awful lot of that stuff has come to pass even without Judge Bork on the court, unfortunately. And it seems like we're looking at, as you guys both said, 
given the way the court stacked up, it's like a lot of the kind of nightmare scenario of 30 years ago is now either has come to pass or seems like it's right on the verge of coming to pass. It does. And I'll just say, and for me, there's a concern about what happens in those cases and the real adverse effects we'll see. I also worry about the court, especially in a world where we have senators behaving as they did in the hearings this year, that the court even with you know extremely conservative jurists over the years, managed to stay in their lane in some way, right? To really uphold the principles that the court has relied on over centuries. And I think what you see in justices today being willing to reconsider precedents that were only, you know, in the last 10, 15 years, 20 years decided, and that they consider completely changing that. I think that there's a sort of politicization of of the court that I don't know that we can survive. Right now, the court is still our best option, I think, uh, to ensure that the principles that we care about are protected. If what I think may happen in these cases goes down, I think we're we're in really, really bad shape. I agree with you. And, and now that we've gotten Neil off the line um, and, <laughs> and, and because of his various, you know, we, we discussed before we started rolling here, uh, just a little bit about this massive controversy going on around Ginny Thomas. And your last comment kind of raises it for me. And I'm going to ask you, and you'll say what you feel you're comfortable saying, Neil, Neil has cases before the court and so is in a position where he doesn't want to be commenting directly on a sitting justice, which I totally understand. And you may not, but I do feel like I have to ask you just because it goes directly to the thing you just were talking about, right? Mm -hmm. The court is now held in lower repute, taken less seriously, less respected, and seen as more overtly political than at any time in our lifetimes. The public confidence in the Supreme Court is at a historic low. Start with Bush v. Gore, and it's been on a kind of steady downward trajectory ever since. Mm-hmm. When I look at the Ginny Thomas thing, apart from everything else, it says a lot about the current Republican Party. Is it crazy that the wife of a Supreme Court justice, someone who's ostensibly like has a brain in her head, believes things that are batshit crazy? I mean, batshit crazy. The craziest things that your craziest aunt or uncle posts on Facebook who's the most adult person, that's the stuff that she's posting, right? That's how nuts she is. Is that a window into elite Republican circles? It may very well be. Is it a problem in terms of Justice Thomas's recusals? Do we need to know more? We sure do. But it also just, because of what it looks like, it looks totally corrupt. I mean, it looks, it looks to people like, yes, Justice Thomas goes around and says, everyone thinks that he's given speeches where he says, everyone thinks that we're just political actors and we just vote our toward our ideology. And he says, but that's not true. We just follow the law. And then you see something like this. If you're a normal citizen and you say, a guy on the Supreme Court's wife is part of the Stop the Steal movement and was communicating directly with the chief of staff. And none of that was disclosed while he ruled on cases that directly pertain to the unsealing of Donald Trump's records. I mean, that just looks just like on its face corrupt. And I think it goes to the question you raised, which is the perception of the politicization of the court and the undermining of public faith and confidence in it. I'll cease my speech with that and ask you, don't you think this is the kind of thing that, among other things, that feeds into the lack of public confidence in the court as a neutral, non-political body? I'll say this. I can't think of another example where we have a family member 
of a justice sort of in the public eye in the way that we see this now. And without speaking directly to Justice Thomas or his wife, I, I would expect that the members of this court are going to be having some serious conversations as they move forward, because even those who, who clearly are not going to vote the way that I would vote in a case, I think will understand that there are steps that have to be taken to, to ensure that people in the broader community understand that the justices themselves are taking seriously what's happening and will do what they can to, to reinforce and underscore the values that the court must protect. Right. I know one of the people in your mind right there is, is Chief Justice Roberts, who really cares about this issue, about the court's institutional integrity. And there is no code of conduct on the U.S. Supreme Court. It doesn't exist. The only real remedy for this is impeachment. And that's something that, you know, is not has rarely even attempted, let alone successfully implemented. So I just I find myself thinking Chief Justice Roberts has to do something. I don't know yeah. what that is, but I feel like he has to do something because this is pretty bad. My guess is that he's he's got a lot on his plate right now and then he's trying to work through <laughs> so that we we don't lose confidence in this branch of our government. Or any more confidence we already have. Uh, Neil Katyal is skiing. You and I are still chatting. And Chief, <laughs> Justice, Robert, and Chief Justice Roberts is having like a very kind of uh, agita-laced <laughs> agita weekend. <laughs> what were you saying? I thought you were going to say cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe. Could be. If, if Chief, I will say it's a, it's a Saturday morning here. And if Chief Justice Roberts is drinking at this hour, um, it's, a, it's a sign that he really is giving this problem the due weight that it deserves. Uh, Robin, thank you for taking the time. And it was great to have you on. Thanks. Thank you. Helen Highwater is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Neil Katyal and Robin Lenhart for being with us. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to Helen Highwater and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Helen Highwater. Pierre Bienname engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Margot Gray is our assistant producer. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. And Marshall Eisen, the one and only Marshall Eisen, he's our executive producer. 